Amen. Open up Matthew chapter 5. Someone asked me last week when we finished the Beatitudes, Brother Jeff, what are you going to do now? And I said, well, I still got two more chapters to go in the Sermon on the Mount, so you're stuck. So I hope that it's been a blessing to you to work our way through uh, the Word of God and just go verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Now today we're actually going to skip ahead just a little bit, but I felt like it was a passage that applied to the Sermon on the, or to the, the Lord's Supper very well. So we're going to be in verse 17 today. We're going to start there. Next week, I promise, we're going to come back to verse 13. I'm not going to skip over that, um, but just felt like it, we could rearrange and, um, and cover what I needed, wanted to cover today as we get into the Lord's Supper. Verse 17, this is what Jesus says. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. And the law or the prophets there is the same for the Old Testament, for the Hebrew Scriptures. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, early on in Jesus' ministry, as he's come to this point, uh, there began to become this, this idea, this rumor, this fear among the scribes and the Pharisees and other Jewish uh, leaders that Jesus was trying to start some new religious system, some completely new religious idea or, or religion, really. Uh, and then in doing so, he was trying to do away with the Old Testament, with the Mosaic, Mosaic Law. His way seemed so revolutionary, um, they just didn't know what to do with him. And so Jesus here in this verse is speaking um, in response to probably the rumors, the comments that are being made, where people were saying, oh, he's just trying to get rid of Moses. He's trying to get rid of the laws. And Jesus says here in, that, in verse 17, what did he say? He said, he came not to abolish the law, the Old Testament, but to fulfill them. Now, we're going to come back at the very end of this passage and talk about what that means that Christ came to fulfill them. But I want us to see what he says next, um, the warnings he begins to give us, because I think we can, look, we can use this first verse to answer the last verses. Verse 18, he says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, he's referring to the two smallest characters in the Hebrew language, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Modern day translation, Jesus is saying, if you think that any of, his, of God's commands, any of God's promises, his commands, his desires are, are going to go away, or if you think that they're going to change, or they're going to pass away in this life, you are mistaken. He's declaring here that God's word is eternally true. It's eternally valid. It's eternally in, in force. His word, his truth, his standard, his, his, his ideals, his commands are unchanging. They are never ending. Now, as I turn on the TV today, as I, as I watch the TV and read the news and see what goes on, uh, there's one particular question uh, that I think is the, 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 if not the most pertinent question, it's at least one of the most pertinent questions that are asked today. And it's probably a question you may have never even thought about, and it's this question. Is there such thing as absolute truth? And what I mean by that is, is, is the entire direction of our society, the entire direction of our culture is determined by the answer to that question. Is there an absolute, never-changing definition of truth, definition of right and wrong? Is there some unmovable standard for morality that has been set by someone, something higher than us, a God in heaven, um, of what it means to be righteous, what it means to be holy? 
Or the alternative would be, is truth what we would call relative? Does it shift over time as culture changes? Does morality evolve? Now, we would call that second idea there relativism, the idea that truth is relative. And it's a fancy word, I know. Maybe you've never heard that word, but I promise you see this every single day. The idea that truth has shifted, that right and wrong has moved, and that as society evolves, so does the idea of what is right, what is wrong, what is good, what is evil. And what is right tomorrow will not be the same as what is right today. Now, here's the thing. If truth really is relative, if it really does move, let me tell you something. Do whatever you want. Because no one could tell you otherwise. If it really is relative, then just do whatever your little heart desires because who could dare to tell you that you're wrong? But in actuality, that idea that truth is relative really doesn't work. It doesn't work. It might feel good for the moment, but it cannot and will not work in the long run. I really do believe it's a system of doomed thinking, a system doomed for failure to think that we as human beings are the ones that determine what is right and what is wrong, that we would think that we could take the role of God instead of, a, instead of receiving the commands of God. Let me give you a little example. Has anybody in here ever been skydiving? Anybody? Crazy. I, I can't remember, maybe I think it was my dad that used to tell me, you know, why in the world would you want to jump out of a perfectly good airplane? You know, I have never been, um, but uh, I know people like to. I know they think it's fun. Ronnie, I don't understand why you would want to do that, but Bart, you know, I'm sorry. <laughs> but if you do go skydiving, um, what, I, what I have read just from my research on Google this week um, I have found that there are a pretty standard set of rules that skydivers must follow if they want to be alive, if they want to survive the jump. I mean, for instance, there are standard altitudes at which they are to jump out of the plane. There's a standard altitudes at which they are to pull the cord so their parachute will come out. Um, they are told to do everything that their instructor and the pilot tells them and to do it immediately for their own safety. Uh, they're told a particular way to arch their back and to hold their arms out so that they will fall at a right rate. They're told not to curl up into the fetal position because their pack can slide off. All these different particular rules uh, that they must do, they're told a particular way in which to land when they hit the ground so that they don't face plant, all these type things. But let's just imagine this. Let's imagine that you got up the nerve to go skydiving. And let's imagine that when you pulled up to the place where you're going to go skydiving, you hopped out of your, your car, and this smiling instructor begins to put the, back, the, the backpack on you, the parachute on you, and usher you over to the plane. And as the engine's roaring there, it's, it's beginning to, to roar, the, the instructor looked at you and said, well, we here at the Relativist Skydiving School would like to welcome you to your jump today. Now, we believe that there are multiple ways between the plane and the ground, and we do not want to be so insensitive as to declare that you have to follow our way. Instead, we just want you, to, uh, to, to, we want you to, to just listen to that voice within you and to trust your feelings and, and just to, to, to have a memorable experience. Now, would you get in that plane? Why not? You can't be a relativist when you skydive. 
There are absolute standards, there are absolute rules by which you must go by if you want to make it from the plane to the ground and still be alive. Well, relativism doesn't work. The idea that truth changes, that God's commands, God's laws would change or shift um, d- does not work. It, it creates a, a chaotic lawless society where no one has the right to impose their ideas upon someone else. But yet, isn't that the day and age we live in? Isn't it? Where people wake up and say, I can do what I want to do, and no one can tell me what is right and what is wrong. In essence, what people are doing is they're trying to say that I am my own God, and you can't tell me what I ought to do. But yet here in the Sermon on the Mount, we see that Jesus is declaring truth to be absolute, that God's law is not going away, and he's also declaring that he is God. Throughout the Sermon on the Mount, you see that Jesus makes this this particular statement. He says, but I say to you, I say to you. You know, if you went back into the Old Testament and you look at the prophets, and if you were to hear from a Jewish rabbi, you would hear that those prophets and rabbis would always have a particular statement. They would say, the Lord says, and they would declare the truth of the Lord. But yet Jesus here says, I say to you. I, as God, as the Son of God, am declaring to you that I did not come to abolish the law of the prophets but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And so what does that mean? Here's what it means. If there is an absolute standard set of truths that we ought to follow in our lives, you know what? We better find them. And we better live by them. Because that is the standard by which we will be judged. Now look what Jesus says in verse 19. He says, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And so he's he's warning us once again about the danger of redefining God's commands in an attempt to lower the bar, in an attempt to lower the standard. Now, what you know, oftentimes, you know, when we think about the Pharisees, we think about the Pharisees as being uh, the, the kings of legalism, right? Uh, the kings of rule following. But you, what you might not know is the Pharisees had become the masters of changing the rules, the masters of lowering the bar. You see, they had gone through the Old Testament scriptures and they had, they had narrowed it down to 613 commands, 248 positive, 365 negative. And they were professional rule followers. But even in their legalism... Even in their desire to have these set rules, they sought to make the demands less demanding and their permissions more permissible. And this is what I mean. Uh, They had reduced the commands to outward obedience alone, and they had cared nothing for the heart. Um, For instance, uh, loving your neighbor did not mean loving anyone. It only meant loving a Jew. Um, To be faithful to a spouse meant abstaining from sinful acts. But don't worry about your mind. Don't worry about your your, your heart. Don't worry about your soul. That stuff doesn't matter. Just make sure you don't do the wrong things. And so so even in their legalism, they sought to move the lines. Uh, They sought to, to lower the standard. 
But Jesus says here that the law stands. God's requirement for salvation is still righteousness, his righteousness. And if we soften that stance, if we seek to adapt the word of God to our ideals instead of, instead of trying to adapt ourselves to God's commands, if we seek to, to move the word of God to say what the culture wants instead of moving the culture to be in alignment with what God wants, we are fighting against the desires of our Heavenly Father. We might think that we're removing barriers so people will come to God, but instead we're putting up barriers and making them think that they're okay with God when they're really not. I got a little illustration I want to do, and I need a, I need a kid for a volunteer. I need, I, need some, I need a helper. Langston, come here. I already had you in mind. I was going to make you do this whether you wanted to or not. All right? Come up here. Now, you run cross-country, right? Okay. So I'm assuming because you run cross-country, you probably can, can you jump a little bit? A little bit? Okay. So I want you, what we're going to do is I'm going to give you a little challenge. You've got to jump over this, all right? And if you jump over, I'm going to give you a prize. You got it? Whatever level I put it at, you've got to jump over it. I'll give you a prize. Now, where do you think? Show me right here. Let's walk to here. Come over here. Come here. Where do you think that you could jump over this thing at? You show me how high you think you could go. Like right, right there? No, nope, whoa, 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 whoa. You go to that back wall. So you think, you think about right here, right? Right here. A little, little lower, a little lower, a little lower. No, wait, wait, wait. I want to count you down. Now, let me give you a warning. Do not run into that table. If you do, I'm going to lose my job. You got it? And you like me, right? You do. Okay. So like right here, on your mark, get set, go. What's the problem? Go back to the wall. Let's try again. So you said you could do about right here, right? A little lower. Like, come on, kid. I can step over that. All right. Now, here's the, here's the thing. You can sit back down. Now, did he do a good job? No, he did not do a good job. No, just kidding. Here, here's the thing. Here's the thing. What I have found, and what you probably have found too, is that when we as mankind, as we as people try to set the bar as to what we think it takes to get into heaven, where do we always place it? A little lower than what we actually are right then. That we say, you know what, you just got to be a good person. You just got to, you know, not someone who steals. Not, you know, we always seems that people try to say what it takes to get into heaven is someone who's a little worse than what they are. But who sets the bar? God does. Not us. God does. And where does he set the bar? Look in verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now to understand what that would have sounded like to Jesus' audience, think about this. You know, I picked on the Pharisees a minute ago. I said they were the masters of moving the bar and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, the scribes and Pharisees were the religious heroes of the day. The Jewish people thought that they were tremendous in their ability to uphold the law. They were thought to be the ones who were, they, they were respected for their care, for their concern, for the scripture. And they had really fooled the people. And they really had fooled themselves into thinking that they were fulfilling God's commands. 
But yet Jesus said here, unless your righteousness is even greater than theirs, you stand no chance whatsoever at getting into heaven. To put that into our modern day ears, it would be as if they said this, if Jesus said this, um, you know, if your righteousness, unless your righteousness exceeds that of Billy Graham, you'll never get into heaven. Unless it exceeds that of Adrian Rogers, you'll never get into heaven. Or whatever name you want to fill in the blank of an extremely righteous and, and godly person that you can think of. And so these people thought that their efforts really were something. And we do the same thing today. We think that our efforts to, to doing good and to earning God's favor are so great that we're building this nice resume. But really, Jesus says here, it ain't nothing. It ain't nothing. A few years ago, um, I came across this baseball card. I can't even remember how I got it. But uh, this, is, this is a Topps Future Stars card. And somewhere along the way, I read that this thing's probably worth about $100 or so. I got a picture of it. Um, now, I don't know if you know anything about this card or who's on these cards. But you might know, or you probably don't know anything about Bob Bonner or about Jeff Schneider. I had, I've never really heard of Bob Bonner or Jeff Schneider. And Bob Bonner and Jeff Schneider could walk up to you and say, my rookie card is worth $100. It's worth a lot of money. That's pretty good. Um, for a rookie card. But is, is that rookie card worth anything because of what they did? Absolutely not. It's worth that because of the guy in the middle. Kyle Ripken Jr., rookie for the Orioles, went on to become one of the greatest shortstops to ever play baseball. And one of the biggest accomplishments he had was he surpassed Lou Gehrig in setting the record for the most consecutive games played, 2,632. Get this, from May 30th of 1982 until September 19th, of 1998, 16 years, he never missed a ball game. Never missed a game. And the entire reason this card is worth anything is not because of what those two guys did, but instead only because of what the guy in the middle did. We might think that we do all these great things. We might think that we earn God's favor, uh, that, we, that we do so much to accomplish, to build this resume, to make us great. But in reality, what we do is nothing. Instead, it's the one man who was on the middle cross, Jesus, whose death fulfilled the word of God. What did Jesus say in verse 17? Do not think that I've come to abolish the law. Uh, not, no way, no how. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Our righteousness cannot earn us a place in heaven, but you know whose can? Jesus Christ the one and only Son of God. That is the good news of the gospel, that Jesus came to do what we could not do, to live a life of perfect righteousness, fulfilling the requirements of God's law, dying on a cross and raising from the tomb to do what we could not do, to be the once and for all perfect sacrifice, shedding his blood to pay the price, to cover our sin. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, it says that God made Christ, who had never sinned, to be an offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God. God made a way, just like he had always been doing. 
If you go all the way back to Genesis and you see Adam and Eve sin in the garden, they could not, would not come into God's presence. And God made a way by sacrificing an animal to cover their nakedness. If you go to later in the book of Genesis, you'll see that God calls Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac, calls him to go up on a mountain. Abraham goes in faith and acts in faith. And what does God do? He makes a way by sending a ram caught in a thicket to take Isaac's place. And in Exodus, when God gives Moses the law and says, your righteousness is never going to be good enough, he made a way by giving them a lamb whose blood would be shed to symbolically pay the price for their sin. And right here, right now in the Gospels, we see that once again God made a way that even in our sin, Jesus came as the Lamb of God. And so today I ask you this question, have you come to God by His way? Not are you trying to earn your way into heaven by good works, not, not trying to be a good person, though we are commanded to follow God's commands. That's not what gets us into heaven. What gets us into heaven is trusting in the work of Jesus Christ on a cross. The Bible says that for everyone has sinned, that we all fall short of God's glory standard, and that there's no way we can accomplish that. We never are going to reach the bar, but Jesus reached it for us. And so what must we do in response? Receive the gift of salvation that Christ offers through forgiveness of our sin. If only we would look to him, asking him to forgive us of our sins and make him the Lord and Savior of our life. The Bible says that he, in fulfilling the commands, will give us his righteousness. Would you pray with me? Father God, as we come to this time of invitation this morning, and we consider what... Your son said that he came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, to be our fulfillment. Today, Father, we, we pray, asking that if there be any in this room who have never placed their faith and trust in Jesus, who have never trusted in the work of Jesus on the cross to save them, that today would be that day that they would lay their lives down. They'd quit trusting in their own good works, which will never get them anywhere, but instead would trust in you. Pray that they would, God, I ask that they would pray today, asking Jesus Christ to forgive them of their sin, believing on his work on the cross, trusting in him as Lord and Savior. Father, if there be those individuals today who need to make that decision, I pray that they would walk this aisle and they would want to find out more about what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And Father, for we who are believers, God, I pray that we would never stop trusting in the gospel. That even in our, our attempts, even in our desire to follow your commands, that every single day we would wake up trusting in the gospel, the power of the gospel in our lives that even when we do fall, even when we do falter, even when we do slip up, God, that you still love us and that you still care for us and that Christ's righteousness still covers us. Father, for whatever decisions need to be made in this point of invitation today, I pray that you would give that individual the confidence to do so. And it's in Christ's name we do pray these things. Amen. Would you stand as we sing?